0: Hello again. As I said before, my name's Chad. If I haven't met you, I'm Chad. Um, if you tell me your name, I may forget it. I'm telling you, it happens. I like pray, Lord, please let me remember names. It's not fair. There are a lot of you. There's one of me, Um, but I'm working on it. I'm trying hard. Um, Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Uh, If you have a copy of God's word, open that up uh, or open your device and let us see the glow of God's word reflecting on your face. Um, You can also follow along on screen. But before we jump in, I wanted to tell you about uh, something going on in one of our uh, tender members' life. He's also on the board. Many of you know Steve Baumgart. If you don't know Steve, there's a chance you will eventually. There's a chance you'll probably get a phone call from him because he actually takes the church directory and just goes down and calls the next number. And all of us on staff, like we receive calls from Steve. He's an encourager, he's somebody that just loves to pour out the love of Jesus. And eight months ago, he went in for routine knee surgery, and eight months later, he has had it replaced again and gone through just the most difficult things that a person could endure. And he called me yesterday, and Steve, who's usually so positive, so bubbly, and everything's okay, was in tears. And he just said, I'm going back to the hospital. Uh, infection, in pain, and just really struggling. And so I was prompted by the Holy Spirit, and by that I mean my wife, that we should because that's how it works sometimes, that we should pray as a church, that we should believe that where science and medicine maybe is going, ah, we're still going eight months later and we should be so thankful for what the Lord has given us through doctors and medicine, things like that. But that we also, we believe in Jesus and we believe that he can heal. In the New Testament, they would have people come to your house and they would put their hands on you to to pray for healing. Now, we can't go to the hospital today, but lacrosse is that way. And if you feel comfortable, let's stretch our hands out and we're gonna pray and Steve is listening. And so Steve, this is for you, brother. We're gonna ask the Lord for healing. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for our very own Barnabas, our encourager. And Steve Baumgart, Lord, he is uh, a man of God who loves people and shares your gospel well. And Jesus, he is asking, we are asking for your help. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful for medicine, and for physicians, Lord, who spend years learning how to take care of us, and for uh, prescriptions and all the things that that can happen in a hospital. But Lord, we also recognize limitations. And when doctors say, hey, we're trying, and I know right now just as there's fighting infection, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would place your hand on his body and you would heal him, Lord, that this would be, this infection would be gone. We pray for healing. We pray for complete renewal, Lord, that he will be strong again. I know, Lord, he was planning on being here today. This, is, this was the service he was going to be in. He was going to be back. And Lord, instead, he's in the hospital. So Lord Jesus, we just bring our brother before you. We believe you can heal. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. If you know him, uh, give him a call, send him a text, write him a card. He will appreciate it. It was 20 years ago, September, and many of you who, if you were alive then, you remember where you were when somebody said, or you caught on the screen, an image of New York City, World Trade Towers, First plane had hit. And if you remember some of the stories that were happening, even as they were trying to make sense of it, I remember the first thought, I actually got a call from one of my students. I was a youth pastor. He said, hey, a Cessna hit one of the World Trade Center towers. And I was like, oh, wow, how'd that happen? I remember turning on the TV, going home. We all know what happened as the days unfolded. And as we watched the events that morning happening on TV in front of our eyes. And I remember driving through town a few days later, maybe it was a week later, because we had heard the story of a guy named Todd Beamer, who had been on flight 93. And we learned later that that flight was probably headed for the Capitol. And intent was to do harm, evil intent. And Todd Beamer and several other passengers led a They revolted. Basically, they said, we're going to try to take over this plane to keep it from hurting others. Became national heroes instantly. And I was reminded this week because I was uh, one of my trips around the lake, which I usually do that at least once or twice a day. Um, The Lord does a lot of talking to me out there. And I was listening to his wife, Lisa, speak at the 20th anniversary of Wheaton College, which is where I went, where my wife, Lisa, went. And Todd Beamer was three years ahead of us. Uh, He was actually in the class that my sister Cindy and her husband Al were in. So they knew Todd and Lisa. And so it was like, whoa, this is really close to me. This is somebody. And actually, if you go to Wheaton College today, there's a whole building named after Todd Beamer, the Beamer Center. And she was speaking and the phrase that came out of his mouth, which was heard on a phone call to an operator named Lisa Jefferson. He made a call and was telling her what was happening. He was on the call with her for 15 minutes and she heard him. His last words were, you know it? Let's roll. let's roll, let's roll. And I remember driving down Interstate 40, Knoxville, Tennessee, Toyota dealership with a 40-foot American flag and guess what was printed on it? Let's roll. And you, would, you saw that on aircraft carriers and it was like, it was like this rallying cry. I was listening to Lisa Beamer this week and I was reminded of how conflicted my heart was. I was a citizen of heaven and I am a citizen of the United States of America. And the wires were tangling in my heart of how I felt because I felt probably like a lot of you, who did this, right? And second, they need to, Hey. I actually heard somebody at church say this. Probably not uncommon at this time, but said this. I don't care if they turn the whole bleepin' place into a parking lot. Wow. Those are some crossed wires, don't you think? I felt conflicted asking. I remember going to a prayer event in downtown Knoxville. A lot of pastors, a lot of prayers, prayers for our nation, prayers for the families, prayer for those lives that were lost trying to save others. And then somebody got up there and prayed for Osama bin Laden to come to know Jesus. And I was like, no! Right? Conflicted. How does this work? How am I supposed to be? Paul wrote in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and we await We eagerly wait for our savior to come from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet Paul often spoke of his Jewish citizenship and his Roman citizenship. How did he do that? How did he hold those things in balance? How didn't they, how could he keep them from getting crossed? Acts 17, Paul, we also see where it says from one man, Adam he has made, God has made every nation in the world to live where they live. He's determined the time that they would live, the boundaries of their homes, whether they would be a citizen of this country or that country, and for what purpose. He did this so that they might seek God. You are a citizen of whatever country, and wherever you end up, God has sovereignly orchestrated that so that you would seek him. And it says, and perhaps reach out for him and find him. How do we hold those things in balance? Is there a biblical Jesus focused way to do both? Well, to maintain dual citizenship, to both be somebody who loves this country and also loves our eternal destination, our eternal kingdom. This question is not new. It actually occupied the minds of the first readers of this gospel, because Theophilus and we've talked about him from the beginning Luke the doctor wrote this for his friend Theophilus who was trying to figure out if he wanted to follow Jesus or not many scholars believe that Theophilus was a Roman government official little key there at the beginning when he says most excellent Theophilus it was the same title used of Felix the governor when Paul said it so it's a it's a high title somebody who's in a government position so he's saying like look I want to follow Jesus. I want to be certain, but I also want to know how do I do this whole thing with my job and my country and what's my relationship to the state supposed to look like? How can we hold both allegiances in balance? If you're not tracking with me, let me say it straight. How can we be Christians and Americans? How can we do that? How can we be patriotic and our eyes get misty when we hear the national anthem, and mine do. I take my hat off, I put my hand on my heart, and yeah, I get tears in my eyes. I have family members who sacrificed for this nation. I get, I get emotional. How can we be that way and thankful for those sacrifices that secured freedoms for us to do what we're doing this morning, but ultimately find our complete allegiance in Jesus? And be absolutely devoted to his kingdom. How can you love your country, but love your eternal country? How do we do that? Do you think the wires are crossed a little bit now in the United States with what it means to be a Christian and an American? I think so. I think so. How do we do that? And just so you know that I'm not like, I didn't plan this out, that this would be the passage because today's passage talks about it. I'm like, oh, great, Lord. Thanks. We got to talk about, but he's like, yeah, we got to talk about this. Our mission on this earth is to be dual citizens, to find our true identity in Christ, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's much more cloak and dagger than you think. In some cases, you can be hurt and lose your life. So this morning, as we look at Luke 20, verse 19, I want you to be thinking about those questions. How do I do both? How can I do them both well and not get caught up in something I shouldn't get caught up in and be faithful to Jesus and also faithful to the place that he appointed that I would live? So let's read the first few verses, Luke 20, verse 19, and we'll get into it here. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. So they've gone from just arguing with him. They're trying to get him now, trying to capture him. And the reason they perceived that he had told this parable against them, it's the parable that Pastor Daniel spoke about last week. The vineyard, they send the sun, they beat up the sun. So they're sitting there thinking, I think he's talking about us. And he's like, yeah, I am. And so they're trying to capture him, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Give him over to the state. So these guys are going to an awful lot of trouble for a nobody, if Jesus is a nobody. If he's just an ordinary man, just a poor country rabbi, why bother? Let me tell you why. He's messing with them. He is, he's got something deep in their hearts, and he may be the same with you, and they can't Get rid of those thoughts and those feelings. And so it says they sought to lay hands on him. They're trying to get him. By the way, this is the last week of Jesus' life. And I love this bit of genius genius, that they perceived that he was telling the parable against them. Yeah, he was. (laughs) Of course, he's talking about us. And so we got to get him. We got to shut him up and we need to kill him. They're afraid of him. They're afraid of the people. So here's a question for us. If Jesus is a nobody, you won't care either about him. You won't bother. You won't come to church anymore. Why bother? Why, why, be, why even be here? Just get up and leave right now. If you don't care, if, if he's not real, or if there's not something true about who he is, you wouldn't bother. But you're here because there's something that just kind of, I feel like I should. I feel like I should do. There's, there is more to it. And if he continues to bother you, you will not only be messed with, but you will go to great lengths to try and stop him. The world will go to great lengths to try and stop him. And so these guys, here's what they do. They put energy, resources, manpower, time, political influence. They risk your reputations. They put their own power on the line. They plan, they strategize just to get Jesus, just to get him. And with a plan and any good plan or rather a sinister and evil plan, you got to have spies. So they sent Spies who pretended to be sincere. Most people love a good spy thriller. Jason Bourne is my preferred spy. Uh, He doesn't know who he is, but he has mad skills. He can kill people with magazines. Rolled up. He's amazing. And, And then he's like, how did I know how to do this? You know, taking apart weapons in like 20 seconds. He's like, I don't even know how I did that. So he's trying to figure out. He is there's also cheesy spy Bond, James Bond. When he jumps out of an explosion, he's like, fix his cufflinks, You know, every time you look like even the new trailer for the new Bond movie coming out, he comes walking out of this flame and he's like, yeah. fixes his cufflinks. Do I look okay? But here's the thing. Long before Ian Fleming gave us James Bond and long before Robert Ludlum gave us Jason Bourne, The Bible gave us spies. The Bible was writing about this stuff long before. Espionage is only utilized when the stakes are high. When it's life and death on the line, when the outcome of civilizations are at stake. So if you see spies in the Bible, which you do, life and death is what's at stake. So if Jesus, the disciples, the early church had spies in their midst... What does that mean for us? There are spies in this room. There will always be spies and traitors among us, and some of them will turn to Jesus. There will always be spies among us, and some of them will turn to Jesus. One of my favorite spy stories, kind of good guy spy stories, is D-Day, Stephen Ambrose's book, uh, it was Normandy Beach, but it wasn't 1944. It was actually New Year's Eve, 1943, a secret spy mission, espionage to gather information. Major Scott Bowden and Sergeant Ogden Smith were transported in a little bitty submarine that held about five people off the coast of Normandy under the cover of night. They were equipped with pistols, daggers, waterproof, water-proof flashlights, a compass and a dozen 12 inch metal tubes for what? To gather sand samples secretly to find out whether or not our tanks could roll on those beaches. we're gonna invade a country, we're gonna invade a continent. We hope that our tanks don't get stuck in the sand. They could hear the Germans singing up on the ridgeline. It was New Year's Eve. They got down, they swam into shore. The tide took them in into this little town called Mer, later to be codenamed Sword Beach. They filled up their things and they said, all right, let's get out of here. They started swimming out and they're getting pounded by the waves. Try it again, got pounded back onto the shore. This time gave everything they've got, finally make it out. But then something happens and Sergeant Smith begins yelling. And Major Bowden said, oh no, what's happened? So he swims as hard as he can over to him and he finally makes out what Sergeant Smith is yelling. And he's yelling, happy new year! He said, I cursed him. And then I said, happy new year back. Now, why do I love that story? Because it's not the one that everybody knows. D-Day, June 6th, like thousands of troops going ashore. Obviously so thankful for that. I'm sure that, you know, you go to France today and you can actually see some of the restaurants say, welcome to our liberators. So it's a big deal, but I loved this was secret way before. And I also love that they kind of made a joke in the middle of doing this really dangerous mission. Secret espionage, but here's the thing life and death, the outcome of nations on the line. You only send spies when the information is vital. So, what does that tell you about this story? Why are they sending spies to spy on Jesus? Because he's a nobody? No because life and death and eternity itself are on the line. Did you know that there was an embedded mole and spy with Jesus for three years? Ate with them, drank with them, did ministry with them, listened to Jesus' teachings, hung out with him around the fire. Three years. Judas, did Jesus kick him out on day one? No. There will always be spies and traitors among us and some of them will turn. The number is growing here. They're being sent to incriminate him, to find a way to get him, to destroy him. How can Jesus be okay with this? How can he be okay if there are people in this room right now that are spies and that don't know Jesus? How dare people come to church that don't know Jesus? (laughs) We would not be in church if that's what we were doing. You better hope there are spies and traitors and look to the person to your right and left. One of them may be a spy. They are here to get evidence on you and your faith. They want to know if it's real or not. They're going to report back to somebody. There will always be spies in our midst, but some of them who start out as spies, you know what happens? They come to know Jesus. Can I give you a couple of names? Nicodemus. He's a part of this group maybe not sent right here to be a spy, but he's a part of this group. He doesn't know, we don't know where he stands. We get a little glimpse in the middle of John. He's like, ah, maybe we shouldn't hear him out. But he still hasn't turned yet. He's still a member of that group. Joseph of Arimathea, buddy of Nicodemus. He hasn't turned yet either. Did you know that some of your favorite verses were written by a former spy? Who wasn't just a spy, he actually killed people and murdered them for following Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for I'm convinced of this, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities will ever separate you from the love of God. Spy, killer, murderer, Paul. There will always be spies and traitors in our midst. Paul reminds us, that the weapons of our warfare are not physical. They're not flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is code for people. Why don't we fight people? Because Jesus likes to save people. Jesus likes to save people. Example in Paul's life. Paul sat in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard, three feet away from him, 24 hours a day. That guard was changed every four hours. He was never without a Roman guard chained to him. That guard, we think, from scholars, was the Praetorian guard, which were Caesar's personal bodyguards. So how did Paul react to having a traitor and a spy who could gather evidence against him, being chained to him 24 hours a day? He wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon all while being chained to a Roman guard. And when I say wrote, he wrote with a scribe, which means that the Roman guards heard the gospel and all those letters before the churches even did. You imagine if you were one of those Roman guys and it was your shift change and you got chained to him and he's like, oh my gosh, this guy won't ever shut up. <laughs> and here he comes and Paul's like, hey, how's your family? Wasn't your son sick? I've been praying for your son. La, 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 la. But here's what happened. Spies can be turned, and they were. At the end of Philippians, Paul says, All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Guess who those were? The guards that came to know Jesus. <laughs> Paul's actually telling you, Yeah, these guys, I've been, t- I've been sharing the gospel with them 24 hours a day, praying for them. They've heard me write these letters. It was God's plan traitors among us, spies among us that then, oh my goodness, they have come to know Jesus. So just by watching Jesus interact with these spies who have been sent to get him, we get a clue as how we're supposed to live with dual citizenship. Doesn't mean it'll be easy though. It's still going to be hard. Let's look at verse 21. So they asked him, teacher, we know, wait, wait, we got to read it the way their heart was really saying it. You ready? Ready? Now, we, we've learned to do this in proper ways where people, we think we're fooling people, but here's, here's how they were thinking it and feeling it. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. <laughs> Is that a fun conversation? <laughs> no way. If somebody spoke to you, it'd be like, "Oh, you're dripping with sarcasm. Get away. No, I don't want to talk to you. And then the question comes after that butter-up attempt. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Religion 101 is this. It's possible to say and do the right things and not mean it. Right? That's religion 101. You can go through the motions. You could say all the right things. You could say the right prayers, and you don't mean it at all. Teacher, we know that what you speak and teach rightly, you shall show any partiality. You truly teach the way of God. We'd like to learn from you. So what's this approach tell us? Do they really think this? Do they really mean what they just said? No, they're trying to kill him. It's fake. Is this their true motivation to find truth? No, it's pretense. Remember, spies who pretended to be sincere. So they don't really mean it. They don't really want answers. They're looking for evidence. So they ask, "Uh, should we pay our taxes, Jesus? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, separation of church and state. Why is that even in the Bible? That's crossing a line. We don't, we do not. Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? Separation of church and state. Well, wait a minute. That's us. But he's still, you're crossing some lines, Jesus. Now, to be fair to the scribes here, it's a pretty good tactic because anybody knows if you mix Politics and religion, what happens? Right? Fireworks and sparks. So the holidays are coming. You're going to go gather with some people around the table. You're going to eat massive amounts of gravy, and turkey and mashed potatoes, and I am too. It's going to be awesome. But you're also going to navigate some conversations, aren't you? Different people coming, different people sitting around the table. And there's benign holiday conversation, safe. It goes like this. How's your family? Hmm, good. What are you up to? Wow, that's so interesting. Are your kids in college? What about the Vikings, the Packers? Vikings keep losing. Yep. You stay in that land, you're pretty safe. We get to Packers, ooh, you get careful. I've, I've discovered. I don't have any dog in any of those hunts, by the way. Like, I'm still just college football, Tennessee fan, but wow. Ten years of being here, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But so that one's probably the borderline issue, Packers-Vikings. But there's also cancerous conversation. Try this at Thanksgiving. You know the problem with people in your political party? (laughs) You know what I think about masks <laughs> or vaccines or bring up the controversial and conspiratorial they or them who are keeping you from your freedoms in Jesus <clears throat> turkey and dressing flying you know <laughs> so is it our intent when we go into those conversations to truly learn from other people what they think. No way, no way. We're trying to glide over. Can we get to the pumpkin pie any faster? And that's exactly what's happening here. There's no true intent to learn from Jesus. They're planning, they're strategizing. There's many discussions, there's hours of talk, but it's because they're absolutely frustrated with Jesus. Can't get him out of their head. Can't get him out of their life. They shouldn't care about him, but they can't get him out of there. And so they're thinking this. There has to be some way around this man and his words. Just play that out right now in our culture. There has to be some way around this man and his words. I just have to find it. They take the political angle here, but it's the same old tactic. You're just trying to silence a noise in your soul, an ache in your heart. How many in the world right now are trying to get Jesus, Christianity, the church, God off their back? Leave me alone. It's the big problem. It's the question. What do we do with Jesus? If Jesus is a nobody, just forget him. Walk away, ignore him. But to answer the question from the Bible, how can I get Jesus off my back? How can I ignore him? You wanna know the answer? You can't. There's not a thing you can do to get him to leave you alone. And even if you succeed in avoiding him most of this life, as soon as you step into eternity, first question, what did you do with Jesus? You can't get him off your back. My advice, I think the spies here should have taken it. They didn't. Take what Jesus is saying as absolute truth. Quit trying to get rid of the evidence. But that's exactly what these guys do. We got to get rid of the evidence. What is the evidence? Jesus himself. Get rid of him. If we can't shut him up or beat him in debate, we will just have to get rid of him altogether. Hmm, I wonder how that strategy will work. We've all read ahead, haven't we? You can't get rid of him. Let's see how Jesus responds in the last few verses to their little political Thanksgiving dinner strategy. Here we go. Verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness, surprise, and said to them, show me a denarius, show me a coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then give, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. First thing that jumped off the page, he perceived their craftiness. Have you seen that before in Luke's gospel? If you haven't, I'm gonna tell you, it's there all the time. He read their minds, he heard their thoughts, he heard what they were saying inside, and he responded. He knows your thoughts, he knows your rejection of him, he knows why you're rejecting him. Did you know that Jesus knows why you don't want him even before you're born? It's not a surprise to him. And because it's not a surprise to him, he is unfazed in his love and pursuit of you. He's like, ah, come on, bring the spies, let's talk. He's unfazed. So he says, hey, who's got a coin? Show it to me. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? So take it, this is a picture of the coin, in the time of Christ, it's a denarius, it's like a penny. And so what you'll see on there is a picture of Tiberius Caesar. Isn't that kind of funny? We still put heads on coins, people. And here's what it said. Very important what it said to consider how Jesus responded. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the backside, pontiff Maximus, high priest. So let's get this straight. The son of God is holding a coin that has a government leader on it that says he is the son of God and that he is the high priest. Is there anything more idolatrous than that? Tiberius is the son of God. Tiberius is the high priest. Are you kidding me? Jesus, take that coin and throw it back in their face and say, this is idolatry. That's why this nation is done. Is that what he does? Nope. Jesus shows us how to respond here by not responding the way we think he should. I said this in the first service and I'll say it again. Do you ever uh, late get a cup of coffee or tea in the car and you don't have the travel mug because you didn't wash it and it's a regular mug and you get in the car and you're driving and you're, you're doing this balance. Maybe you got like a piece of toast shoved under your armpit and you're, you know, you're doing the drive with your knees and everything. And isn't it amazing that, As human beings, if we have an open mug of something hot and we drive around turns and over railroad tracks, what do we do? Mm -hmm. Like if there's four people in the car and they all have an open cup of coffee or tea, we go around a curve, everybody goes, "Mm -hmm." you go over the tracks, everybody's like, "Mm -hmm." how do we know how to do that? God's built it into us. Because if you stick that thing in the cup holder, what happens? Flash around. (laughs) Right? It's all over the place, but we know how. And actually, sometimes you put it in the cup holder and you drive down Huff and you forget you're about to get to the train tracks. You're like, hold on. You grab it last second and you're good at it. Jesus says, in responding to the world, I have built into your soul a gimbal that can handle these bumps and bruises. Don't take the bait, don't jump onto these things. That's how I want you to respond. And so he responds back, not with throwing the coin in their face. He says, hey, if it's his, sure, give it to him. Why not? Give it to him. Pay your taxes. Go ahead. And later on in the New Testament, he has Paul write, and oh yeah, you can submit to the governing authorities as well. If it doesn't violate your worship of Jesus, yeah, those things have been put in place for you. Actually, I want you to pray for them. Pray that they'll make wise decisions. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But then there's an and. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your tax, do your, do your duty, your rightful duty. And, and this is the huge and, give to God what belongs to him. Hint, hint, hint. Here's the real question Whose image is stamped on your soul? Jesus is fine to tell you to pay your taxes because he knows that his image has been on your whole life, which is why you can't get rid of him. This is why it bothers. It's why he bothers you. That's why when he tells you his laws and stuff, even if you come with really creative ways to say, I don't know if that means what it means now, you go home and you're like, you bother me, Jesus. Why? He's like, because I'm Right there, Genesis one twenty six. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Whose image and inscription and likeness is on the coin? 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, which is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus' ah, political move here is genius. To those who think he makes a political statement that they can justify some of the things that they want to do and participate in and would try to use to their own benefit, I think the spirit would say, look again. And to those who say he never says anything political, look again. Because the kingdom of God, the government of God is a very political thing. Asking you to submit Your allegiance, ultimate allegiance to him. He's teaching us. He's showing us how to live. So back to Lisa Beamer and Todd Beamer as we finish. Lisa, and I was listening to the message that she gave, and I've kind of followed her over the years, hearing what she said. She said that the moment she found out what had happened, her phone was ringing off the hook. And knockings, knock at the door, and it was either people bringing food or a full news crew. She did over 200 interviews. And she said, I knew that the Lord was giving me an opportunity to share the gospel with every one of them. As I listened to her speak this past month at Wheaton College, she said this. She said, unfortunately, Todd's actions, I think were taken a little out of context. She said, he was presented as this manly, manly man who was fighting for his country. She no doubt, he gave his life for people. He gave his life for others so that they, he was fighting against evil, for sure. And she even says that in her own book, which is titled, Let's Roll. But she said, but Todd did what he did because he knew who God was. He knew who his savior, Jesus, was. And he was able to get up and go and give his life. And Lisa Jefferson, the operator, she called Lisa Beamer because Todd asked her to and said, I have a message for my wife and children. Will you promise me that you will call them? It was like a 15 minute conversation. She said, I will. She called her, gave her the message. And even if you ask her today, she won't tell you what the message was because it was for Lisa and the kids. but she said, well, tell me more. Like you, you said, you, he asked you to say the Lord's Prayer. He also quoted Psalm 23 over the phone, but he asked you to say the Lord's Prayer and did you complete it? And Lisa Jefferson said, top to bottom, the whole thing. And she said, and at the end of the prayer, he said, oh God, help me. Jesus, could you please help me? And she said, and he wasn't upset at all. It was very peaceful. An unusual peace, and that was the question that Lisa Beamer got in 200 plus interviews. How could he be so calm? How could he be so peaceful? Why did he do what he did? How did he hold in balance his love for United States of America and the people on that plane, the people eventually in the capital that could have been hurt, and be okay with giving his life? He knew who he belonged to. He knew where his hope was anchored. The image of the one who made him and saved him was stamped on his soul, so his voice stayed calm as he asked the operator to recite Psalm 23 and to pray the Lord's Prayer. Think about these words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, come, your nation, your government, come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And his wife, Lisa, reflected and felt like the Lord was speaking to her about this moment of the prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. The final moment of life. Lord, I want to be, I want my heart clean. I want to be completely right before you. And then this one, as I forgive those who are trespassing against me right now. Shut up. Think about that. In the plane, they are driving, flying the plane into what would be the capital to kill thousands of people, an act of evil. And he is in the back and he is praying, Lord, forgive them. Come on. That's, and then it's this beautiful mix where he does give his life and rightly so, sacrifices and rightly becomes a hero. Here's what I think. Todd Beamer became a hero that day because he already had a hero in his soul. That's how you hold it in the balance. I'm gonna have the worship team and those who are serving communion come forward and begin serving. And the table is a perfect place for us to think about even what Todd did because ultimately it was a small image, symbolic picture of giving your life for people. And in that moment, forgiving the very people that were carrying out that act. Beautiful. I love, and you guys know this, if you've been here for communion, I love reading from Isaiah first. 800 years before Jesus sat in front of his disciples and actually shared the Passover meal with them, Isaiah wrote this. He was despised and rejected by men. Some of you feel rejected this morning. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Some of you have deep sorrow and have experienced deep grief. And as one from men, whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You feel looked over that people don't see you don't notice you. Jesus knows what that's like. And by God's grace and faith, we believe what Isaiah wrote next. But surely for certain, Theophilus, for certain, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Even when we thought he was just stricken and smitten by God and afflicted The truth was he was pierced for my sins. Dare we say pierced for the sins of the terrorists on flight 93? Yes, we dare. (laughs) Yes, we dare. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was punishment. We deserved, it brought us peace instead. And with his wounds, we are healed. Yet all we, like sheep, gone astray, we have turned every single person to his own way. Which, rightly so, God could say, fine, then go your own way. It's not what he does, though. In the face of humanity turning its back on the Savior, it says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What manner of love is this? So when Jesus sat down and they were eating together, he took bread. After blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. Let's partake together. he also took the cup and there was no not only a symbolic gesture it was about to happen if you read passages in the Old Testament it says that those who reject God those who turn away from him deserve the full cup of his wrath and they will drink it to the dregs if they stay in that rejection Jesus holds it up and says hey my summary but hey drink of it I'm doing this for you drink of it all of you this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins and I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day and man what a vintage that will be when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom let's partake together we just want to say thank you this morning for looking at us in the act of literally terrorism against you. Complete rejection even as these spies came in Lord you saw humanity saying we have to get rid of him. We have to dispose of him. He's bothering our souls. And in the face of that, Jesus, you laid down your life. You offered up yourself in spite of us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we started to think good thoughts. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. To those this morning who maybe are still trying to figure out how to get you to leave them alone, would they relent? Would they repent and surrender and give their hearts and lives to you? Or would we give our love, all of our love to you this morning? We pray, God, as we just sing one more song together that your spirit would be moving throughout the room, tapping on shoulders, maybe putting your arm around some whatever you need to do to, to get us. There. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you feel so led, why don't we stand together and sing.